Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand, and uh, one of our ushers in the back will bring you a Bible. Um, If you're new to the Scriptures, just simply open it up, look at the first couple pages, you'll find a table of contents, find the page number for 1 Peter, and you will pretty much be where we're at, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning. Follow along as I read. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices suffices for, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's go ahead and pray together and ask God for help this morning. Father, we do humbly come before You recognizing that we need Your help to understand Your truths and Your realities. God, as we dive into these ancient words, would You speak to us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it happens all the time. An eager Christian is going along their merry way. They're attending church. They're in a small group. They are participating in ministry, serving in the nursery. They're in a discipleship relationship with a friend. They're growing. They are still friends with their old friends, but they don't drink like they used to. They've stopped having sex with boyfriend, girlfriend. Her tone has changed when it comes to sin in general. She has developed some convictions, and as a matter of fact, recently she's had the opportunity to defend her biblical convictions when asked. But then everything changes for her. Her boyfriend says that she is a prude and breaks up with her. Her friends stop inviting her to parties and other social gatherings. Her friends say that she has been duped by the church. Now she's standing at a crossroads. Which way does she go? Here are her two options. Number one, our friend could back up from church just a little bit. Try to find some middle path maybe. Not be so focused on obedience to God and have an easier go at life. Have social acceptance. Have friends. Or, number two, she could remain obedient to God and find suffering. Find loss. 
The big statement that I want you to know this morning is this. Obedience to God may sometimes mean suffering. Should we say that together? We don't typically do this as a church, but if this is so important, I think we should. Say it with me. Obedience to God may sometimes mean suffering. We don't like to think of that, do we? Now, on one hand, we would say, well, it's clear. Persecution around the, country, around the world. So, for example, in India, just recently, there were two pastors that were dragged out of a small church service by some radical uh, Muslims. They were beaten. Their ribs were broken. They were actually dragged to the police station where they were accused of and found guilty of conversions, converting people. So on one hand, we could say, yeah, it's clear that in some places in the world that obedience to God may result in our suffering. But what about right here? Are there any ways in which obedience to God right here in in our church, in our world, in our city would or could result in our suffering? Well, here's what I want to say is I think we probably suffer all the time. There's a lot of different ways. We might not be beaten and have ribs broken, But there are a lot of different ways that we suffer for righteousness' sake. Let me give you a couple ideas here. On one hand, you might... uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Let me do this. Look around at each other. This is my first one. Look around at each other. All right? You're looking at opportunities to suffer right now. Do it again. Look at your neighbor and say, you are an opportunity to cause suffering in my life. There we go. Now give him a high five. No, we're not... Um, why is it that we avoid intimate relationships with each other? Why is it that when you know someone is struggling, you don't call them? Or you don't answer when they're calling? Why is it that you avoid getting into an intimate relationship in a small group, or a house community, or a discipleship relationship? Why is it that you've noticed that someone hasn't been to church in months, and you haven't called them? Well, it's simple. It's because we want to avoid suffering. See, we are called to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, and one thing we have to realize is that actually means (laughs) bearing each other's burdens and sorrows. So what does that mean? It means that when we come together and we get intimate with each other and we begin to get to know each other, we also begin to suffer with each other. It's impossible for me to talk to you or for you to talk to me when I am suffering and to not in some way pass that suffering on. So if we are in ministry and life together in community, we are always finding opportunities to suffer out of obedience to Jesus and bearing each other's burdens and sorrows. A second big one is when it comes to convictions. I think having Christian biblical convictions will often bring suffering into our lives. Let me uh, explain one way that this, uh, that this can be from a, a, a page from my own diary, if you would. Um, a couple years ago, as our church was forming, really coming together, trying to understand some things, the question about the sinfulness of homosexual, homosexual activity, all right? So not, not affections or attractions, but the actual practice, the activity of homosexuality came up 
Is it or is it not a sin? Came up with a number of people in the church and, and I was asked, is it or is it not a sin? Now during those, that time and during that year, I studied the Scriptures. I looked at all of the passages. I picked up each passage and I turned it every way you can turn it. I, I argued every passage in context and then I argued it out of context and I tried to look at every, every verse and every way that we can try to understand uh, how to answer this question. Is homosexual activity a sin? I waded knee-deep knee in uh, pro-gay theology. I re- read authors that uh, disagreed with traditional views. And what I came to understand was that the Bible from the very beginning to the very end condemns homosexual activity as sinful. Now, as I shared this, this brought me suffering. I lost friends. I got emails from people who were close with me expressing to me how they now have ill feelings (laughs) toward me in so many words. Our church lost people. Friends, I suffered. You know, with an issue like that, it's not that I choose to believe something just because I want to believe that, right? But I have to conform what I want to what the Bible says. And often, in a world where the tides are going a different direction, it's inevitable that we're going to suffer. Now let me just say this, if you're gay, or if you have same-sex attraction, we are glad that you're here. We welcome you. You are always welcome with us. We love you. And at the same time, one thing I want you to understand is is that obedience to God for you may too mean forms of temporal suffering. And we're going to come back to that. I want to move on, but I actually am going to come back to that theme and explain what I mean by that, but just broaden it for now. For every, every one of us, no matter our gender or our orientation or our, our religious background or where we came from uh, or our age, obedience to God may often mean suffering. So what do we do? Because <laughs> here, here's the issue. If we're not ready for it, this is the issue. We will be, and this is maybe our problem as a church, really, one of, our, one of the issues that we might struggle with. We might get our theology all put together. All right? We, we will have spent months in uh, this theme on suffering, and we'll be able to tell you why we suffer, uh, how to endure suffering, um, how suffering can bring glory to God, and then suffering strikes and we throw in the towel. This isn't the God that I serve. I'm leaving this church, taking a break from God, because I'm suffering. When you were saying amen a week before. (laughs) What's the problem? Why do we do that? It's because we get it here. But it doesn't trickle down to here. All right, we get strong in the heads, but not in the hearts. So how then can we prepare to suffer? How can we ready ourselves to suffer? 
Well, this passage basically gives us an answer. This passage says, arm yourself. Put on some armor. So unless you are Mel Gibson in Braveheart, you do not want to go into battle without armor on, correct? You don't want to be having these spears and swords and bullets, whatever era you're in, coming at you and you have no armor. So let's put on some armor so that when suffering strikes, due to righteousness sake, we can be ready. All right? Can we do that? I'm going to give you four pieces of armor to put on. Number one, we must be armed with the mentality of Christ. Look at verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So since he suffered, arm ourselves first with the same way that Jesus thought. How did, what was Jesus thinking? What, what, what was his mentality, if you would, that prepared him to suffer? First, he had a mind of obedience. His mind was set on obedience. So Hebrews 5.8 actually says this, that Jesus, though he was a son, learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And you say, wait a second, I thought Jesus was God. How did Jesus, being God, learn obedience? Well, here's the reality. God in human flesh had to obey with an intentionality. He had to willfully choose obedience. You see, obedience happens not when we just simply desire something. For instance, I want to take the trash out. Obedience happens when my wife says, Joel, take the trash out. And I conform. And I obey. You see? So Christ, in his human form, had to willfully and intentionally choose to obey. And it was through suffering that he learned how. Uh, there's a big difference between our desires and, our dem- and, and God's demand. In verse 2, it says basically we've spent enough time living according to our own desires. And we must now live a life that conforms to the will of God. You see, we live in a world that basically says whatever I desire is my law. But the biblical worldview says that whatever I desire may or may not be God's law, and so I am going to conform my desires to God's demands. So obedience means that we hear God's demands and that we then do them. Secondly, Jesus had a mind focused on ultimate victory. It's the same kind of mind that Paul had, actually. Paul said in Colossians, I press toward the mark of the high calling. Why was Paul pressing toward the mark of the high calling, it's because everything within him wanted to focus on his past. His past sins. His past failures. And then on another day, everything in him wanted to focus on how righteous he used to be. And how he doesn't need grace. Right? Everything in him wanted to take the easy road and to say, you know what, if I could get away from this, if the resurrection didn't happen, I would. I would be home getting ready for the playoffs today. Okay? But I set my mind on the victory, on the high calling, on the finish line, and that is how I endure suffering. Now, going back, I want to speak to my gay friends one time again here. Those who struggle with same-sex attraction, 
in the midst of a culture telling you that if you uh, do not give in to every desire, then you are in some way psychologically damaging yourself. In some way, you're denying yourself who you actually are. What I'm telling you is that to pursue holiness on this issue will mean suffering in the eyes of your peers who think you've lost your mind, who think you're absolutely ridiculous, who think you're damaging yourself in some way, who think that you are going to ruin yourself in some way. And then as we know that God doesn't necessarily and always change attractions, for some this may mean choosing a life of celibacy. And friends, we know that if a life of celibacy is chosen, that that is in some fashion a form of temporal suffering. Right? Meaning we have to be prepared to suffer if God calls us to this kind of obedience. Now, what is our hope? The hope is to keep our eyes set on the victory. To keep our eyes set on the goal of the high calling. To keep our eyes set on where we're headed. The reality that one day we will be freed from these bodies that are prone to sin and we will be in a loving and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and each other for all of eternity, the kind of relationship that marriage is only a small hint of. And so we have a mind set on ultimate victory. Now we do this all the time. Wednesday mornings, your alarm goes off at 6 a.m. You've got a lot of work to do that day. You've got three days left of the work week. How do you get through Wednesday morning at 6 a.m.? Well, you know that Saturday's coming. And on Saturdays, you get to sleep in. And so we can, now that's a terrible theology of work, by the way, all right? I'm not trying to argue a theology of work right now. But the point is this, is that we get through the suffering (laughs) knowing what is to come, you see? That is having a mind like Christ set on ultimate victory. Otherwise, otherwise, let's just get drunk. Let's just smoke weed. Let's just live it up. You know, I hardly judge the drunk who, who, who has no hope in the next life. If this life is all he has to live for, then you might as well drink away all of your sorrows. You might as well go with the writer of Ecclesiastes, let's eat, drink, and be merry. But if Jesus is your Savior, then you have a great and victorious hope in the next life, and it is a focus point to set your mind upon, and it gets us and prepares us and drives us through suffering. All right, let's move on from this one. Number two, we've got to give you a second piece of armor here, and that is through being dead to sin. Verse one goes on. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, does this mean that if you fall and scrape your knee, or actually one of our members fell this morning and scraped her chin, does this mean that she is now freed from sin? She is sinless because she has suffered. (laughs) Is that what it's saying? Well, of course not. So what is it saying? There's a lot of different ways to argue this, and here's what I think it's saying. I'm not going to take the time. I don't have the time to explain to you all of the exegetical issues here. But I think it's clear that what this is saying is this. If you have chosen to suffer for righteousness' sake, then you are dead to sin. You're dead to sin. 
You have intentionally chosen to take the route of obedience even though you know that it's going to bring suffering upon you. You have killed the nerve of sin. You have cut sin off at its root. You're dead to it. Sin has no pull on you. You are freed from sin. And so we arm ourselves through being freed from sin. Romans 6.22 says, now that we are freed from sin, we are slaves to God. How do we free ourselves from sin? How are we dead to sin? At the core of the Christian worldview, one thing we, we know is that everything that God requires is only for our good. And sin is believing just the opposite of that. That God sometimes requires something of you that would ultimately be harmful. This is the first lie that was in the garden, right? God doesn't really want your best. The irony is this. What God requires of us does not always feel best for our temporal lives. When I was a kid, I loved chocolate chip cookies. And I still do, actually. So if you ever want to if you ever want to give me a gift, get Jess Pastrowski's recipe on, uh, uh, for chocolate chip cookies and just make that for me. Um, now, I ate chocolate chip cookies like crazy as a child, all right? So I'd ask my mom if I could get a cookie. She would say yes. I would get a chair. I would get up on top of the, uh, the refrigerator, and I would grab not one, but four, and stick three in my pocket and eat one in front of my mom, right? <laughs> I had cookie crumbs in my pockets all the time, all right? I would take cookies during the middle of the day while my mom wasn't looking and stick them in my pillowcase so that way I would have a snack after, after I had a snack, <laughs> right? I would have another one when my mom said I can't in my pillow. Now, it's funny. <laughs> As we mature, we, we stop doing that. Like, I rarely put cookies in my pillow these days. The crazy thing is this. As we mature, we begin to crave what is good for us, what is healthy for us. I actually crave broccoli probably more than cookies now. Now this happens spiritually as well. This is one of the strange things that happens with us spiritually. We go from God's demands, all right? We see them as God's demands and we're going to follow them even though we don't desire But then over time, what happens is his demands become our desires. And we begin to realize that his demands are indeed good for us. And so then when faced with a situation where obedience to God may mean suffering, we choose obedience to God all of the time. Being alive to sin then means 10 times out of 10, you're going to trust your own desires and distrust God's Being dead to sin means that you trust God's word. Now, our third piece of armor, as we are dead to sin, there's another sin uh, focus here, and and our deadness to sin actually becomes a hatred for sin. So this is our third piece of armor, that we begin to actually hate sin. Look at verse 3. For the time is, uh, that, that is past is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passionless, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So one of the strange things that happens here is that 
our demand becomes our desire, unlike Adam and Eve in the garden who, who was, they were focused on that one tree out of the thousand and they couldn't get their mind off the fact that God didn't want them to have this. We actually then choose, we begin to desire God's will. We begin to desire what God wants and we begin then to absolutely hate sin. How? Number one, two steps to hate, in hating sin. Number one, we, we realize that we have actually sinned enough. So we see this in verse three. He says, the sin, the life that you've lived has actually been sufficient. Meaning, you have actually lived a good life of sin and you're done. You don't need to keep sinning. You don't need to. It's actually enough. When I was 18, I was growing in my love for Jesus and I remember at the same time, I was tempted with this thought, I haven't sinned enough yet. Like, there are still a lot of sins that I want to do before I really give my life over to Jesus. Right? There's a lot of immorality that I still want to get into. There are uh, substances that I have yet to try. Why do we do this? It's because we believe that sin is actually good for us. We We believe that there's something there that's enjoyable. And we think to ourselves, I'm not done yet. But when we begin to hate sin and we grow in maturity, we realize, like, oh, that's enough. Our sin, the life that we've lived, is sufficient. And then secondly, we see that sin is, gets progressively worse. When you look at the list that he has here, uh, it, these aren't just random sins that he puts together, but th- these are all actually connected and they are progressive. So he begins with sensuality, which would be sort of partaking in just lustful th- sort of things. It's not really outward. Moves on to passions a little deeper than the drunkenness and then to orgies and then to drinking parties, which would be sort of bringing drunkenness and orgies together and then lawless idolatry. So what we begin to realize is that with the progression of sin, that the smallest sin of sensuality actually ultimately leads to rebellion against God. It ultimately leads to idolatry. The smallest sin of sensuality ultimately leads you to hell. And when we begin to realize how progressive and dark sin actually is, friends, we hate it. We want nothing to do with it. And we are now freed from sin. The point is that we would choose to suffer a thousand times before we would ever choose to sin. Now lastly, my, this is my favorite piece of armor that we put on as we, as, as we are arming ourselves to be obedient to God even when it means suffering, and that is this. We are to be armed with future hope. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you, but they will give an account to him who is, already, uh, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Well, what does this mean? It means that God is a just God. That God will make every wrong Right, that God will bring ultimate justice. I was speaking to a man this last week who told me that he's sometimes, he's usually an agnostic and sometimes he's an atheist. An agnostic means that there's probably a God but we'll never know. Atheist means that I know that there is no God. And I said, why is it that you are usually an agnostic? And he said, I have a problem with God's wrath. 
I don't believe that God, if there is a God, could be a God of wrath. And I said, okay, why is it that sometimes you are an atheist? And he said, I'm an atheist on the days where I see suffering. So for instance, 300 children are, are taken into custody by Boko Haram. I am now an atheist because there can be no God with this kind of suffering in the world. And then I asked him, I said, well, let's assume that there is a God, just for a moment. If there is a God, do you think that this God would actually bring justice to those 300 children? Do you think that this God would actually not wink at the sins of Boko Haram? Do you think that this God would actually be a God that, that would bring judgment upon those that do such wicked things? And he said, yeah, if there was a God. And I said, then you don't have a problem with God's wrath. <laughs> we believe, we're, we're, we're heading on the same track, the, the right road here. Look, the opposite side of God's love is his justice. God is a just God because God is a loving God. And so we are then armed then in knowing that God is a just God and that God will bring all of our enemies to justice. Now we know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. What that means is then at the core, our enemies are not really the humans that are persecuting us. The, at the core, our enemies uh, are the, the principalities and powers of the fallen world that are influencing them, the sin that has corrupted them and that has a hold on their life. At the cross, then, our human enemies become our friends. This is why, then, we can stand in the face of an executioner as a Christian and share the gospel with them. Because the real enemy is sin and death. So God is a just God and we are armed with his justice so we no longer have to run from suffering or be made angry by suffering, but we place justice into God's hands, ultimate justice. Secondly, we are also armed not only with that, but as we are armed with this future hope, we, we, we then see that we have life. We have life. Look at this last verse right here, verse six. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now what does that mean? What, who are the dead? The gospel is preached to the dead. Who are, who are the dead that are being spoken of here? Are they the, those sitting in the ca- or laying in the casket at the funeral? And the gospel is being preached to them? No. Are they those in hell? And this is a second opportunity for repentance. Well, we can't, we can't biblically support that. So who are the dead? Well, I believe it's, it's answered this way. The dead are those saints who were previously alive. This is why the gospel is preached to them. If you have an NIV, it's translated, who are now dead. Which I think is a better translation. Meaning, those saints who died in this verse, they were judged in the flesh the way people are, they died at the hands of persecution, now they are dead, this is why the gospel was preached to them. So that they would have this glorious hope as they face their final hour of suffering. So that they might then, the last words there, live in the Spirit the way God does. Be raised in the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that Christ was raised. You see, the worst thing that suffering can do to you is kill you. That's the worst thing suffering can bring. 
That is the end of physical suffering. And that's not too bad for the Christian. Your enemies, they can beat you. They can kick you. They can spit on you. And when you're dead, they can't do anything else to you. And they lose. For we have this hope in life. The glorious hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you have this hope? Is this your hope? Do you see Christ on the cross dying for your sins? Have you ever repented and trusted in His gift that He gave you of forgiveness of sins on the cross? Have you ever pleaded with Him and called out, Father, forgive me? Have you trusted in His life, in His resurrection, and believing that that is enough for you? Have you ever called on His name in this way, pleading for hope? Do you have this hope? I pray that you do, and I pray that you won't leave here without it this morning. If you don't have this hope, please talk to me. Talk to someone else that's sitting next to you today before you leave. Say, I don't have the hope. Let me just close with a couple application points. Number one, you can now bear burdens and sorrows because you are armed and ready to suffer. So when one person uh, uh, is, is weeping, you can take on and feel their pain and you can freely obey your Lord and Savior. Number two, we can now suffer together as a community because when one person suffers, we all suffer together. When one person weeps, we all weep. When one person is suffering due to righteousness' sake, we all enter into that suffering with that person. And number three, we can now live a radical life of discipleship. We can develop relationships with, with drug dealers and prostitutes and bear the shame that they bear and be misunderstood at times. We can go into the darkest places in this city and boldly proclaim Christ. We can go into the darkest places of this world where Christians are being killed and boldly proclaim Christ because we are now armed and ready to suffer. I have told you these things, Jesus said, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Are you ready and armed to suffer? Are you ready to obey Jesus even if it costs you your life? Let's close with that. Pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we could enter into this word. We do recognize, Lord, that we're dealing with some very weighty stuff here. We're dealing with some big issues. God, I tremble as I look at the people I'm speaking to and recognize that your word very well may call them into a life of suffering. God, would you help us, prepare us, ready us, arm us, so that when suffering strikes for righteousness' sake, we might be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.